Hi, I'm Yun Lee. And I'm James Parnell. And we are the hosts of Bar Talk. Bar Talk is a lecture, performance, and storytelling series that usually takes place in different bars in The Hague. Each of our podcast seasons has a different theme, featuring one guest per episode, offering their unique perspective. Today, we'll be interviewing Lucas Johnson about his role in reconciliation projects, his understanding of nonviolence, and the role of faith in his social healing work. Lucas Johnson has a deep global experience in conflict resolution and community organizing. He has been shaped by his time learning from veterans of the civil rights movement in the U.S. and by his work with human rights activists all over the world, especially in Africa, Europe, and Latin America. For six years, Lucas was a coordinator at the International Fellowship of Reconciliation, the world's oldest interfaith peace organization. He is now the executive vice president of the On Being Project, a podcast and radio show exploring the questions, what does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And who will we be to each other? Let's welcome Lucas. Lucas, it is so good to have you online with us for this conversation. Yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm really impressed with everything you guys are pulling together and also through the different challenges that COVID has presented. So I'm, I'm glad that this worked. That is so sweet. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> All right. So we know you as a well-respected mediator and as someone who's a part of the queer community in the Netherlands. So we wanted to start by asking you to share a little bit about your background how did you go from being an ordained minister to becoming the executive vice president of the On Being Project? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think particularly for the context of the Netherlands, it's important to locate what it means to me to be ordained and what that represents. You know, I come from the United States and I was raised by you know, parents who integrated their public schools during the Black-led freedom struggles in the United States that we commonly call the Civil Rights Movement. And the language and tradition of struggle was always theological. There was always resonance in me that certain forms of injustice would not just be called wrong or illegal, but evil. And what it meant to be a minister in my mind and my imagination meant that as a, as a growing up meant that you you were someone who cared about God and God's people and you were someone who was tasked with the responsibility to serve them and to fight for them and to protect them and to accompany them in the difficult moments of their lives and and that is a a really powerful sacred trust to be with people in their most tender moments through baptisms and death and dying. I go from that sort of formation, that orientation, and, and the kind of place of theological curiosity. I was always interested in these questions of justice and how we try to make life better for people. And that was my sense of vocation. I had a chance to become mentored by veterans of the civil rights movement. And and I fell into this group of people who were conscientious objectors to military service and who represented a global movement of people who were inspired by their faith and by conscience to engage in nonviolent direct action for, you know, 
just social, political, and, and economic transformations in the world. And that is what eventually brought me to to the Netherlands because I was working as the international secretary for the world's oldest interfaith peace organization. Um, when I first took the post in uh, 2014 and I came to the Netherlands early in 2015, it was just after the, the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris. We are Charlie, they chanted, a slogan that has encapsulated the mood of a nation determined to stand shoulder to shoulder with those who died today. And there was a very tense moment in, I think, European civil society and in sort of, you know, where people were asking these questions of about radicalization and, and questions about social cohesion. And there was very clear xenophobia. And it was also towards the beginning of the, the sort of kick out Svarte Piet movement uh, in the Netherlands that um, Mitchell Isaias and Jerry Afria and, and others were, were a part of. Anti-racism campaigners held protests throughout Holland on Saturday as the Dutch celebrated the arrival of St. Nicholas and his traditional yet controversial companion, Black Pete. Black Pete is usually portrayed by white people in black face paint, wearing frizzy wigs and red lipstick. It is criticized for being racist. And the leaders of the Dutch branch and the leaders of our Belgian office and also our German office eventually would come to me and say that, you know, they felt like the most pressing problems of violence in their countries are, you know, racism and Islamophobia and xenophobia, and that they felt like it was important for us to deal with these questions of social cohesion and these questions of, you know, how we live together. So I started this project with my colleagues um, to try to address that. Um, Krista Tippett is someone who I, I met through my mentor, Vincent Harding, many years prior. And along the same time that I was engaged in this project that I was just describing, dealing with these questions of social cohesion, she was also recognizing that the United States was, there was no public space for people to engage in the kind of honest conversations that we need to have with each other. There was no space where that was happening in civic life and public life. And so she had launched this project that she was calling the Civil Conversations Project. And she eventually reached out to me um, and asked whether or not I could come and bring leadership to those efforts. And that began my transition back to being more present in the United States and, and also uh, began my my time with On Being. Okay. So it was a very yeah. long answer to your question. No, there you um, have it. And we're going we're gonna to get back to some of those points as well. Yeah. So in your introduction, you talked a bit about like the workshops that you're doing. We know that you're also leading some projects in the On Being project. So in your own words, what exactly is the work that you do? Huh. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> um, so our work with the On Being Project centers around three animating questions. What does it mean to be human? How should we live? And who should we be to each other? And I think of my work as in some ways really holding that third animating question, who we should be to each other, and accompanying people and communities as we try to live that question and as we try to deepen our understanding and our appreciation for each other, even when it's hard, even amidst conflict. And I, I talk about social healing in the context of my work because 
we need to, <laughs> we need healing. <laughs> um, you know, Andrew Young, who was one of Dr. King's lieutenants, uh, he used to say that his father would talk about racism as a sickness. And he would say that you don't get mad at sick people, you heal them. And that really kind of, kind of shaped my, my approach to a lot of these things because our dehumanizing each other, it causes us harm. I don't believe that we can really live without each other or not, not live in, in the fullest of, of human possibility. And so our lives are diminished by, by the diminishment of other lives. And so I, I, I kind of take that approach to the work that, that we do. Another long answer. But. No, but also really powerful. <laughs> yeah. Um, so social healing then is what you would say you do. Yeah. 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 It's because, and I mean, I think this is something that you can see like as a general description in the work that you've done at IFOR or at On Being, whether it's, you know, hosting an interview or doing mediation work in interpersonal conflict. Yeah. I think that. I think you're right. I've never tried to sort of apply apply that sort of across my kind of career, I guess, or, or my 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 being in the world and, and the way I try to live. But but I, I guess that social healing would be a, a, a an accurate sort of description. Uh, I think the challenge is that people, if I was to say that to people, they would say, "Okay, now how do you get paid doing that? What does that <laughs> what does that mean?" Yeah. <laughs> okay. So actually, on that. <laughs> That links to our next question, which is, well, yeah, how do you train to become a, see, we, our question was, how do you train to become a mediator? But, you know, what you do is much broader than mediation. So what kind of training do you take to do all the things that you do? Yeah, I, th I think that's a good question. I mean, professional mediators, I mean, that is its own sort of training and school of thought. I mean, and they come from a variety of different disciplines, but professional mediation is something that is distinct. And I don't really describe myself as a mediator in that sense. Um, some of my training, I, I was trained in a, a conflict sort of theory called conflict transformation. And it was pioneered by one of the pacifist Christian traditions, the Mennonites. And they take this approach to conflict that basically is rooted in the fact that conflict is an opportunity. And you don't really have growth without conflict, right? Mm. And that really when people are in conflict, it's an opportunity to see what matters to people because you tend not to be in conflict around things that don't matter for you. And so it's an approach that says that, you know, at the beginning of any conflict is an opportunity to really come out on the other side of that, not where you were, but in a new, a new place with a new depth of understanding of each other. And so it's an approach that trains you to to listen well and to try to be present and hospitable for what you might learn from other people in the midst of conflict. So that's a training that I had and it was a part of my my theological education. So okay. I, I think that I was able to kind of combine that with the trainings and what I learned from, you know, in terms of practicing nonviolence and the mentorship that I received from, you know, people in conflict zones around the world, as well as, you know, my elders in the civil rights movement and the way that they, particularly Vincent Harding and what he taught me about how he 
and what he showed me, what he just showed me by like accompanying him in the last years of his life, like how he sat with people and how he dealt with people. And, uh, and even when people were coming at him with all sorts of, you know, challenges and just watching how he responded out of, out of love, he was able to sort of hear the hurt for what it was, the pain for what it was and meet people there, right? Acknowledge and honor that. And so it was, a. It, I think all of that kind of comes together to sort of orient me towards this. But in my tradition of theological training, this is not the case for everyone, but we also take certain amounts of sort of family systems theory, sort of a bit of psychological training, just enough to know how to refer people to professionals. Mm. Um, <laughs> okay. And this is not, this is not a common part of theological training or education. Um, in the United States, it's common among, uh, let's say, mainstream, your mainstream theological tradition. Okay. In your more conservative theological contexts, they will also have classes on pastoral care and counseling, but everything has a very, they're not engaging, let's say, the secular wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> they're only engaging Christian teachers. I see. And, you know, I can be quite critical of that and quite suspicious of it as, as any queer person should be. <laughs> right, right. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so we'd like to talk a bit about the work that you've done in the International Fellowship of Reconciliation. So mm -hmm. IFOR is a non-governmental organization that focuses on active nonviolence and reconciliation and started in 1914 um, in response to the horrors of war in Europe. So, it's quite hard for us to imagine what a process of reconciliation would look like. So we're wondering, how do you facilitate reconciliation between people or groups or countries? Can you explain the process to us? So first, let me, let me say that I am not, there are world-renowned people that have, you know, led reconciliation processes and, you know, contributed to peace accords and so on and so forth in war-torn places. I am not one of those people. Mm. Okay, maybe, I, th I think this was actually a presumption of ours. So maybe it's better to start with, what was your role within IFOR? So my role was primarily to support this network of people uh, from 40 countries around the world to support these nonviolent activists and conscious objectors who were trying to work for social transformation in their different contexts. And in some contexts that meant raising the concerns that they would have as conscious objectors or nonviolent activists at the United Nations and, and at the Human Rights Council or the Human Rights Committee or, you know, in New York and, and different treaty mechanisms and bodies. So that's one part of that work. The other part of that work was when something was happening, when, when folks in, say, Colombia or Palestine or other parts of the world were responding to human rights violations through nonviolent direct action, my job was to, one, support them and let them know that they're not alone and let them know that they're seen and that their struggle is is seen and heard. And so that sense, it was a, a kind of very human job to just support people in that sense, in a interpersonal sense. And then the other part of it was to try to organize collective response and try to coordinate collective response. In terms of like the role that that plays in 
the process of reconciliation, I think it's important to say that these activists always had the peace that they sought in mind in the process of shaping their campaigns, right? So in other words, like you have to be able to imagine that like your opponent is one day a part of the society that you're trying to build. And so how do we engage ourselves? How do we conduct ourselves with that invitation in mind, uh, with that end in mind? And so we would think along those terms. In some contexts, we were supporting actual peace processes, right? But the experts who were leading that were the people in their own countries. Mm. My job was primarily support. Can you maybe talk about an example of this process? Of of the peace process? Yes, yes. And, um, you know, what, what your support looks like in that case. Two examples um, come to mind. One is in Colombia. Um, we had a number of, of our branches that were providing protective accompaniment to farmers and, and villagers and, and, and folks who were uh, under threat by paramilitary forces mm-hmm. who were trying to force them off of their land. And so Colombia at the time was, I mean, the highest recipient of U.S. military aid in the Western Hemisphere and was very sensitive to the kind of international pressure and, and perception. And there was a, there was at times a correlation between, even as like, as high profile negotiations were happening, there were situations where paramilitary forces were are trying to force people off of their land so that multinational corporations could come in and exploit that land for development and whatnot. So we had folks from the United States and others would, who would go and live among those, those populations that were at risk, mm-hmm. creating a kind of deterrent to those paramilitary forces. Okay. And then we would try, for example, to make sure that we were researching, um, force movement and speaking to the Colombian military, who I think in in some cases were coordinating with those paramilitary forces against their own and international law to make sure that they understood that we were aware um, of that activity and that, you know, obviously if there were, you know, American or Austrian or you know, German sort of citizens on the ground that would be drawn into conflict, then that would be, that would create an embarrassing situation and and a difficult situation. And so we would sort of act as a deterrent using essentially other passports to protect people in Colombia. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. (gasps) And so our job in that context was to kind of work with those folks. And then, and then also, again, when, when the, when these brave human rights workers in Colombia would try to raise concerns to make sure that those concerns were were heard and represented and to sort of allow ourselves to be a vehicle for their for their messages um, and for their concerns in the international conversation you know as they were engaging their peace process does that make sense yes 
yeah actions <laughs> and how do how do people reach ifor from on the ground yeah it's a good question so uh, ifor had its origins i think in in alongside the christian anarchist movement and the which was an early <laughs> sort of movement in, in the 20th century and the Christian socialist movement as well. But I say all that to just say that it's this federation of organizations and it can take a lot of work to get us to coordinate with each other as, as is the case among all anarchist inspired um, <laughs> <laughs> groups. So there's an international coordinating office that can be reached. I think it, their website is still ifor.org or international fellowship of reconciliation.org. But a lot of work, most of the work goes on in the national branches, I should say. And so it depends on where one is. Okay. Yeah. But they can find that information, I think, on the IFOR's website still. Cool. So in doing some more research about IFOR, we saw that one of the core values is nonviolence. And you've already spoken a little bit about nonviolence, but we want to know what is your understanding of nonviolence and why are you really invested in it as a practice? I mean, part of it is my own kind of moral, ethical sort of orientation. I don't, I don't, I don't like violence. I don't think anyone does. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier the fact that I think that it's an important practice of humility to know that we were once wrong and to remember how, how we've grown in our times and in our process and humankind is not sort of static. We're always growing, we're always evolving. And I want us to engage in processes that hold the door open for that growth, hold the door open for the possibility that we can all change and that have the kind of humility that recognizes that we were once on the wrong side of, of a lot of issues in our lives or just ignorant of what we needed to be fighting for. And I think violence is always uh, something that interrupts that process that takes away, that kind of denies the, the possibility for individual transformation and for collective transformation. I think that there's, there's often a follow-up question that's asked that I'll see if you ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I have a lot of questions about nonviolence, but I'm curious about what is usually the follow-up question. Well, because of the way that nonviolence gets used, it becomes sort of problematized for good reason, for understandable reasons, because right. people think of it as a way to tell people who are with their backs against the wall how they should fight for their own liberation and freedom, right? Right, right. And that's generally what most people sort of raise or ask, and they want to know my sort of disposition towards that. And I guess my answer to that is the fact that, like, I, I don't think that it's ever right to... Nonviolence to me is not something that you can impose on someone else or demand on someone else. It is something that I think we have to have a, a kind of attitude of sort of awe towards, and, and here's what I mean. You know, the only way to stop a cycle of violence is for someone to absorb a blow. And Dr. King and uh, his sort of methodology and theory of nonviolence would talk about the fact that unmerited suffering is redemptive. And that's really hard. I don't like saying that unmerited suffering is redemptive. I like saying it can be redemptive. And if the only way to stop the cycle of violence is for someone to absorb the blow, there's always an injustice in that. 
And most of the people who are asked to absorb the blows are always already <laughs> absorbing a lot of blows, are already disadvantaged. So there's always an injustice at the beginning of this process where someone says, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to commit violence in return so that this cycle stops. And our disposition to that has to be just be one of gratitude and one of awe and one of astonishment at that person's power to do that. It is something extraordinary that we can hope for, that we can try to invite and cultivate in ourselves and that we can try to inspire in ourselves and each other through acts of hospitality and kindness. But it is not something that we can demand. And the kind of paradoxical thing is, it may always be wrong on a certain level, or, or, or it may always be problematic. I don't, I don't know if wrong is the right word to expect it or to look for it, but our lives depend on it. For me, you know, there's sometimes I, um, I kind of think to myself, you know, when you, you know, as a cis man, I think about what women go through or what non-cis men go through on a day-to-day -day basis. And there's a part of me that feels like it's a miracle that non-cis folks aren't coming to me and just slapping me, like just by virtue of my, <laughs> there's just, there's something to be, there's something to be said for the fact that people are always choosing to do extraordinary things and we get caught up in, in this question of sort of what what someone deserves and what someone doesn't deserves. And for me, there's an extraordinary grace at work in our lives almost all the time. And we just need to make more room for it in ourselves and in, and in each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the kind of way that we can, we can inspire the sort of social transformation that we, we need. I don't, does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I think it's a bit, it's a difficult pill to swallow, <laughs> especially yeah. when you say that it is necessary for our survival. Yeah. But I'm also curious when you're talking about this situation, uh, when you say that it's a miracle that <laughs> to say, yeah, trans people don't just come up and slap you in the face. Do you expand your definition of nonviolence to to include such a choice to like just not inflict violence something as regular as i don't know so that's regular you can say that right well there yeah i mean there are different ways to talk about like what nonviolence is and isn't and there are different schools of thought about what constitutes nonviolence right i guess what i'm trying to speak to i mean as someone who tries to embrace nonviolence as a way of life and as a spiritual practice and it's really really hard to do and I fail all the time, you know, it's also about the words we use with each other. It's about those moments when we can choose to sort of be reactively vicious in our language. It's about the times when we, we can choose to respond out of our, our hurt and our pain, you know, in ways that are not kind of generous. And the thing is, when we make those choices in our personal lives, with each other, we make room, it becomes easier for us to continue to make those choices. And we make room for a new quality of relationship to be formed with the people in our lives. And that can be something surprisingly good and life-giving when that happens. And I think that we make those choices every day 
but it is sort of work. It is something we have to practice at. It's a muscle that we have to develop. And yes, I think of that as nonviolence because it's a choice to sort of to invite that new quality of relationship and to seek to act. And I mean, you know, love is such an overstated word, but overused word, but it's, but it's this thing that we, you know, we choose to be curious about what can happen in a new quality of relationship, even despite the way it's begun. You know, I think about like, I don't know, maybe some of you have had this experience where someone is just kind of rude to you for no reason you know, like maybe it's in some sort of casual interaction and you don't know this person and it's a stranger and they're, they're just rude. But for whatever reason, that day, you have it within yourself to realize, oh, I don't know why this is per- person is being rude, but it's probably not about me. Yes. Right. Maybe, <laughs> yes. Right. 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 And maybe you choose to like show a little kindness in return and that person completely transforms and they realize, like, they, they kind of snap out of wherever they were. Um, every person we meet is in the middle of a conversation with themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't know what they're saying to themselves. You don't know what that discussion <laughs> is. Uh, I, I like to think that they're also probably in a conversation with the last 10 people that they, <laughs> they met, right? You know, because we kind of go through life like having these running conversations. And sometimes for me, if I have a bad day, I'm like arguing with someone that, <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm walking, you know, down the street and I'm like in the middle of an argument with someone that doesn't exist. I've like blown their, right. their criticisms of me out of proportion. And I'm just, you know, <laughs> And in that that process, I'm like sort of preparing myself for battle. <laughs> you know, I'm starting to imagine all the things that I'm going to say and so on and so forth. And so I'm in the middle of that. And then if somebody comes up to me out of the blue, like, you know what I mean? I'm not really uh, yeah, thinking yeah. about them. I'm, I'm just, you know. They're just caught in the so crossfire. I just, I, they're just caught in the crossfire, you know, poor them, you know. <laughs> I think that like there are all these daily choices that we make. These are muscles that we can form. These are ways that we can choose to sort of be in the world and with each other. And like for me, like I promise you, like if you practice those muscles, if you if you try to work those out, you will find like remarkable, like new things happening with you and other people like new. I keep saying a new quality of relationship. Those are words that, you know, a friend of mine and quite famous sort of peace builder, John Paul Lederach uses. Uh, He talks about critical yeast arising when you have people, uh, unlikely groups of people in a new quality of relationship. And it's what produces the kind of critical yeast necessary for social transformation. I think it's something that it's a happening that we get to invite in the world and in ourselves. And to me, you know, because I have this sort of spiritual orientation to the practice of nonviolence, that's, that's what nonviolence is to me. And it's something that you can practice on a very small interpersonal level and something you can practice on a, you know, large intra-community level. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that's what it's about. And again, I'm not the best at this. I Many of my closest friends have seen me lose it uh, <laughs> on many of occasions. Uh, don't ask my little brother to, um, <laughs> to, to, to tell you whether or not I'm the best at this <laughs> uh, or my sister or my, like, anyway, but, uh, or my older brother, but anyone in my family, basically. But, um, 
but it's an aspiration, you know. <laughs> it's um, a practice. It's something that I. Yeah. It's a practice, exactly. I think that was really beautiful and nuanced and uncomfortable, which is, I think, what nonviolence also seems to be. It's just kind of navigating. Yeah, and the language that you use is honestly very helpful in yes. understanding <laughs> it in terms of you know, like building muscles for this and. Concept of critical yeast yeah. as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and look, let me let me be clear about what I'm not saying, and that often people kind of get caught up in with with the nonviolent stuff. I mean, someone people often say to me, they say, "Okay, well, if someone breaks into your house and threatens your family. What are you going to do?" And I'm like, "I don't know. I wouldn't recommend anyone doing that. But like, I know that if I have to use violence to stop that from happening." I will have to grieve the fact that a life was taken to protect my own and my family, mm. um, because I know that the person who I acted violently towards also has a mother, and a father, and a family, and a community grieving, and it's about a disposition towards violence. And I think that there's always this thing where people say, "Well, in this condition, would you be violent? In that condition, would you assassinate Hitler? Would you, would you do all of these things?" And I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I would do in all of those situations. I'm willing to say there may be a time when violence is necessary, and my job is to say and to find ways as much as possible to say, not yet, mm. not today. And in doing that, you know, I, you know, those of you who've seen what violence does to relationships, it enters something that is so hard. To come back from it, it invites something into. It's you know this is why I like the theological language of evil. It's it's like an evil has been divided into the space between you and me, when violence in, occurs, and it is so hard to move past that. Uh, it's so hard to come back from that. It is so difficult to build trust again, to feel safe again. It is something that we don't want to be casual about. It's something that we want to to avoid at all costs, and so. My job, I see my job in some ways, is to always be the one saying, and finding a way to say, "Not today, not yet." Okay, we have two more questions from us, and then we have audience questions. So. In addition to maybe coordinating more large-scale projects, you've also been invited to, yeah, maybe mediate isn't the right word, but assess with interpersonal conflicts in group settings or maybe even romantic relationships. So we're curious, what are some of the reasons that people usually need a mediator, and at one point in a conflict, do people usually ask you to step in? Uh, I think it varies. I mean, I think it, you know, I think people sometimes find themselves stuck. And they know that they're kind of communicating past each other, and they know that a third person might help them hear each other better. And sometimes they're not all equally motivated. Sometimes, of course, like there's one person thinks that if they invite a third person in, that that person will tell the other that they're right. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs>、uh, <laughs> if only. <laughs> you know. Of course, that's always happening in the background sometimes. But 
uh, I see my my role when when I'm one is like it's always like a real position of trust that people have placed me in. And I try my best to really honor that trust and not just, you know, there are times when I may know one community better than the other or one person better than the other. And, you know, I want them to know that my my job is not to sort of take sides in that sense, but my job is to really help help two people understand each other. And I I generally come into that with a I don't know a, a lot of love and a lot of appreciation for the two people that are there because look it's hard being in community it's hard being in relationship like it's hard work and i'm i'm impressed with anybody who's trying to do it you know i try to show up with that awareness and and i think that people are inviting me to help them because i think we all need a little help you know, I'm not a licensed, you know, marriage and family therapist. I am not someone who can do, you know, long-term in-depth couples therapy or, or, or anything like that. But I, I can try to help people get to the point where they can. You know, I just try to be as useful as I can. And I, I'm honored that people have seen me as someone who's useful, particularly in a context, particularly within the queer community, because there's so few people sometimes that understand our lives that we can turn to that, you know, people that don't really hold the complexity of our lives or who still hold judgment. And it can be really hard and it can feel really isolating as a queer person to need support, but not know who to trust. And so I try really hard to be someone who's worthy of that trust. And, you know, sometimes I fail, I'm sure. Uh, but, uh, I think, I just think it's important. I think that's why people turn to me sometimes because they, they know that I'm a part of the community and they know that I live in the messiness just like they do. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That definitely helps. Yeah. And I mean, that's definitely also how you are within the community. You're someone that people really trust. Well, thank you. <laughs> Can you give us some DIY tips on how to mediate a conflict of our own? Yeah. I think that part of it is that like, I think it's important to do the sort of inner work to allow you, yourself to show up to that conversation as one who's curious. That can be really hard when you're an affected party. But if you can show up to the conversation really wanting to understand the person better, then it'll really help you navigate the conflict. If you can show up with more questions than assertions, I know that's hard to do. And maybe you can't quite get there. Maybe, you know, we can't always do that. Again, ask my family. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, the thing about showing up curious is that, like, it prepares you to listen, right? And here's, here's the question that I would kind of often have. Like, who do you know the person to be? Or who do you know the person to want to be? Uh, you know them to think of themselves as someone who, who wants to be a loving, caring person, and whatever they've done doesn't reflect that for you. But that doesn't mean that you treat them as though they are someone who wants to be an evil person, <laughs> right. right? Like, I think that sometimes we don't, we kind of come into the conversation or into the conflict ready to see that person as the worst thing that they've ever done. And you know that that's not who they've sought to be in their lives and in the world. And so invite them to be that that the best of themselves and like and when you extend that invitation 
And when they extend that invitation to you, then it can be enough to really transform the interaction. When you leave space and possibility open for them to surprise you and be better than you can imagine, it's a really vulnerable place to be in conflict, right? Because we're so trained in this kind of gotcha way of engaging each other, right? Mm. That like everything is a <sighs> trap laid, right? Yeah, yeah. And so no one wants to risk vulnerability, not first. But if you can show up, you know, willing to risk a little bit, and this maybe goes back to our conversation on nonviolence, it, yeah. it, may, it may not be fair that you would have to be the person to risk a little bit because you understand yourself to be the person who's the most vulnerable. But uh, maybe you're the, also the person who's the strongest in a certain way, who's the bravest in a certain way. Maybe. some audience questions for you okay so anonymous would like to know why would someone restore a relationship isn't it easier to stop any conversation and accept that people cannot always go on so maybe the relationship cannot continue yeah i mean i think there are different there are different levels of relationship that we're we're in right i i I don't think that we have a choice about whether or not to exist in relationship to one another we just have a choice about the quality of that relationship and we are sometimes just in bad relationship with other people, but they're still there. Right. <laughs> they, still, <Yeah. laughs> they, still, they still exist, hopefully. And we just get to choose what the quality of that relationship is. And I think we, you want to just try for a new opportunity to be in a new quality of relationship, in a better quality of relationship. Look, not everybody needs to do all the work all the time, right? Like, so sometimes separation for health is good. Sometimes distance and time are healthy. And sometimes you just don't have it in you to do all that right now. You know, maybe you you wish you could, maybe you ought to be able to, but you just can't. You're just not, it's just not where you are. I understand all of that, but I think that what we want to try for, I think the answer as to the why is because there's something possible with that person. There's something that that person might be for you that might surprise you. But ultimately, it's not that everyone needs to be best friends. It's not that everyone needs to be, you know, in an intimate relationship with one another. So I, I think there are degrees, right? And a lot of times what I'm talking about is sort of on a macro level, like you, you want someone to, to remain in the community. That doesn't mean that you'd want someone to remain in your home or in your bed. Right. Right. Like that's, there are different degrees <laughs> of assessment that you can make. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for that. Raleigh would like to know, to what extent do you see capitalist systems interfere with progress towards reparations, uh, larger scaled reparations? A lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that, Raleigh. I mean, I think that there are, it's, it's complicated because, you know, our capitalism can commodify everything, even our social movements. And 
there are ways in which it interferes, like the, the mechanisms for communication that are dominated by sort of profit-driven design interfere with how we even have conversations around reparations, right? But by the same token, our capitalist system does allow for kind of private agency, not that it's a an ideal situation, but there is room for people to sort of organize and to make individual acts of reparation that are not a part of, you know, a conversation with a sort of state apparatus. And the, the, the same kind of mechanisms that protect private ownership can sometimes protect private action. Hmm. And so I think therein lies some opportunity, if that if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a very cool that, answer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, all right, so we have a longer one from Keeley. I'm from Canada, Treaty 6 territory, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. There, the discussion of reconciliation has been ongoing since I was very young and has only gotten more urgent as time goes on. On colonized land, I think it's easier to understand the need to bear a responsibility for generational trauma and healing, whether we do it successfully or not. I wonder about a colonizing nation like the Netherlands, however, for whom history can be kept at a distance since the Dutch legacy of colonial trauma was largely exported. What do you see as the challenges for reconciliation and reparations in the context of colonial nations like these? How do your strategies differ when working with nations like Canada and the United States with their highly visible local traumas versus the Netherlands or England, who, aside from immigrants who bring these legacies home, have largely exported those traumas around the world? It's a big and really lovely question. And it's it's complicated, of course. And so I, I don't know if, I, if I'll do more than scratch the surface in terms of how I've been thinking about this. The challenge with where we are today is that we, we have to be able to, th- in, in, ter- in terms of thinking our way to the future that we want to build, we have to be able to work and, and, and think and communicate with an incredible amount of nuance because the world that we live in right now is complex. For those of us in the United States and in Canada, I think, and notwithstanding the, the way that the, this person located themselves in, in terms of their, relation, their relationship with the First Nations peoples and land, it can be really easy for us to think of Europe and the UK in this kind of monolithic way. Um, it's important for us to realize that, you know, the truth is when we talk about the Netherlands, there's a complication because we, we also have to talk about the black and brown and uh, people that now call the Netherlands home, right? We often, we have to talk about the place that it, it is presently and it is becoming, even as we talk about the place that it has been. Yeah. So we have to be able to kind of have that conversation with a lot of complexity. Otherwise, we end up doing harm to our kind of allies in the context of that. And so if we if we sort of talk about the UK or the Netherlands as only places with the historic white identities and populations that define their past, then we end up sort of reifying a notion of who they are and, and contributing to a kind of static sense of who they are and erase who those of us who live there are making it become. So that's one part of my answer. The other part of my answer is, I think we have to be sure to begin the conversations around reconciliation and harm. We have to do it in a way that centers the right relationship to our past. I think that 
that we have to face history and ourselves and we have to allow for that to be done in very complicated ways. I, I don't know if there's a sort of general process that can be applied to colonizing nations vis-a-vis other contexts. I think that we have to create systems of facing ourselves and our history that are complex. I think that part of what this question of sort of guilt and culpability and responsibility, I think is one that that we have to be rather nuanced about. You know, I think sometimes when you have this conversation, you know, people will say to you in a Dutch context, well, I'm not the one who did that. And what you have to remind people is that no, but you benefit from that having been done. And perhaps, and this is me speaking as in the complexity of being a, a black US American, there are ways that I benefit from things that were not done with my consent, with my blessing, that were even done to the detriment of my people. If we talk about sort of, you know, Latin America and the Caribbean. And as we unpack that and as we deal with like facing that, we have to just be able to have a complicated conversation. And so the invitation to extend is to say, how do we deal? with what's happened with what we've done and what we are a part of. How do we, how do we deal with this? And so it's not so much, what are you going to do about what has been done? To me, sometimes my approach is to say, look, as humans living in this world in this time, horrible harm has been done, some of which we've been complicit in, some of which we haven't. And so how do we collectively think about that and how do we act? It's to me about, about recentering the moral obligation to a sense of to a sense of we because history is not just composed of sort of victims and perpetrators and neither is the modern world it's just complicated i i know that there's a there's a kind of deconstructivist marxist analysis that that wants to write these things in sort of broad sweeps and that's a it's a useful analytical tool i don't want to disparage that but i think when it comes to the process of what we have to do and I don't, again, I don't want to, I'm not trying to promote individual action as a part from collective action. I'm trying to say that we live in very complicated societies and we live in a very complicated moment and a, and a complicated moment of global economic structures and systems. And we have to be able to have these conversations with greater nuance. And I think that we've been having if we're trying to get to where we need to go. I don't know how coherent that no, was of an that answer. Was, that was so, but. yeah. Boom, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for this very generous response and one that I think places a lot of power and agency in all of our hands. Yeah. That's all that can be said. So, <laughs> our last question is from Carlota Garcia, uh, who asks, in your eyes, what are key elements in how we can move towards a more unified world where we help and reconcile with each other? I guess you have been responding to this question, but maybe this is an opportunity for you to add anything that you think you might have missed. We've done a lot of work using deconstructive analysis. You know, critical theory has given us a lot of deconstructive analysis. And I, you know, everything from queer theory to critical race theory to, to sort of other sort of critical, critical feminist theory to a lot of critical theory. And they've been really important for us because they help us make sense of what's happened around us. And they, they kind of give us language to understand how we've gotten here. And they give us, you know, the tools we need to sort of know what we need to take apart. But 
deconstruction isn't enough to get us to where we need to go. We also need to know what we need to build. And we need to get really good at learning how to dismantle the master's house, right? To, to think about Audre Lorde's mm-hmm. reference, right? And, uh, and I think we spend a lot of energy talking about dismantling, but we need to also develop the muscles to know how to be the future that we seek, right? How to build the new, I don't even know if it's a house, I don't even know if it's the right metaphor, <laughs> the new dwelling <laughs> that, that we want to walk into, right? And I think we need to practice those muscles just as much. And so as much as we get really precise and really good at being able to describe our problems and being able to diagnose our problems, I, I, I just hope that we spend a lot of time also practicing what it looks like to be in community and to invite others into the solving of those problems. And uh, I think that's that's going to be a critical part of how we how we get to where we need to go. Thank you so much Thank for you. sharing all of this wisdom over the past, yeah, hour. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lucas. It's really been a pleasure speaking to you. It's been an honor to yeah. speak to you. <laughs> oh, thank you, guys. Thank you. It's been. Re- I've really enjoyed this, and thanks for giving me the chance to reflect with you. It's a. Uh, it's a gift to be able to, you know, share all of this and this part of myself and this part of my work. And um, James, I hear that the Frankreich is starting to open soon. <laughs> See you um, there. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, obviously, um, you know, after I've had a few drinks and, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of weed, I cannot, please do not hold me accountable to the best of my um, words and actions. Uh, I'm just like everybody else. Like I, I, I'm a, I do my best. I try to stay the this, this same person, but, you know, sometimes I'm a little sloppy. Okay. I just concede that. We'll give you a hall uh, pass at went. the Frank Reich. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so right. if people want to follow more of your work, where can they find you? I'm really terrible at social media. So mm-hmm. um, I think it's best to just follow me through the on being channels. And I think, you know, we try to put out a lot of stuff that uh, I, I think people will find really useful and helpful. Uh, that would be more helpful than what I would be doing as an individual anyway. So um, <laughs> go there. <laughs> cool. Well, Lucas, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Have a a great evening. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in person soon sometime. That was Lucas Johnson on this episode of Bar Talk. I'm Yoon Lee. And I'm James Parnell. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook, and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. We also made a transcript of this episode, which you can find on our website. You can find links to related resources in the show notes of this episode. We want to thank Hans Poole 
for recording and editing these podcasts, Nia Constantinova for doing our PR, Denise Lee for designing the banner, and Sarafina Van Us for transcribing our podcasts. Thanks to IAI for letting us record in their studio, Strom Denhach and Mondrian Funds for supporting our program, and last but not least, thank you to all of you listeners out there tuning in. Tune in next week for our final episode of the season, when we talk to Sofia Hernandez Chongqui about the three-year-long process of changing the controversial name of the Art Institute Vitrvit, now known as Meli. See you next week.